I want to ask you to, as we talk about together for worship this morning, won't you turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah 12, verse 46. And so please remember this name, Asaph. How many of you have heard about Asaph before? Come on, be honest. One, two, a few of you. He wrote 12 Psalms, by the way. If you ever read your Psalms, you should be reading them, by the way. But when you read the Psalms, it often introduces you to who the author of the Psalm is. And he was a choir master. So it says, to the choir master, often it would say um, that David would write a psalm. And, and then this choir master would, would now put music to the song. So Asaph, Asaph was one man who actually wrote an entire psalm, and he wrote 12 of them. By the way, Psalm 78 is the second longest psalm in the Bible. The longest one is 190. There's no chocolate for that, sorry. Um, and the second longest one was 78, which which Asaph wrote. So just want to introduce you to some characters of the Bible so that you can value and appreciate them. And this morning, there's going to be something about his life regarding worship that I trust will inspire us together. Amen? So 12 verse 46, it refers to something very interesting. Because in, 12, in, in Nehemiah, what we find is that the, that the restoration of what people had years ago, there was constant worship. And because of Israel's disobedience, they lost that. They didn't have that anymore. They started looking for foreign gods and, and serving foreign gods. And God had to come and actually send other nations to take them into exile. And so, long story short, out of all of that, they returned to, to Israel, to Jerusalem. And they re-established worship in the city and in the nation. And amongst one of the things that they do is they, had, they rebuilt the wall. In, in Nehemiah, it talks about that, the wall around the city of Jerusalem. But they also re-established worship through the temple. The temple was looted. The temple was destroyed. And so we find some of that happening in these two books, Ezra and Nehemiah. But in Nehemiah 12, verse 46, this is now about 550 years after Asaph was around with King David. We find the following mention of him. In verse 46, his name comes up with King David. It says in verse 45, if I may read it to you, it says, And they performed the service of their God. These are the guys that are now trying to reestablish um, worship in their community. And the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. So they, 550 years later, they go back to what they had. Under what David and Solomon instituted. And it says, for long ago, 550 years, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So it seems as if the standard of worship that they wanted to reestablish now, 550 years later, this is about 400 years before Christ, okay? So it's 400 whatever B.C., 440 years B.C. They're trying to reestablish. And what they do is, let's, they're referring to what David and Asaph had 550 years ago. And they're saying, this is actually the standard of worship that we want to have today. And this is where Asaph comes in. 
so that his name is mentioned alongside with the man that the Bible says had a heart after God. So there was something in Asaph's heart that was pure worship. And when I mean worship, it's not just singing of songs. It was that thing that we actually spoke about when we, when we referred to the kids here, that they said they loved the Lord their God with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, and their strength. And so this is what he seemingly had, that 550 years ago, his life, together with David, would become the standard of what the Israelites wanted again. How's that? Imagine if, just picture yourself now. Here we are worshiping God today. And 550 years from now, which is crazy to imagine, isn't it? Come on, come on, quick maths. What will that be? 550 plus? 2021 is 2021. So then year 2621, there will be people that will say, we're in this old dilapidated building. 550 years ago, whatever. There were some people that worshipped God here, that came together. They were called King City Church. And you know what? We need to reestablish what they started with and what they did. And I remember there was a man called Joe Mone. And I remember there was a man called Felix Pasla. And I want to have what they did again. Now, 550 years later. How's that? How's that possible even? But here we find it. That the standard of worship, the reference, the understanding of worship that they had was still what they knew of 550 years earlier. And here we bring in our our dear man called Asaph. That the life he lived was clearly one worth mentioning. That his name comes up 550 years later. I don't know, who do we think of now 550 years ago in our world that we refer to? What would that be? Now, that's another sum quickly, hey? What is that? 550 years ago? Anyone? At the the time, the year. Sorry? 1471. How many of you can remember what happened in 1471? Hey, listen, I remember the World Cup then. Of darts. I mean, no. Now, 1471, we don't really know. We don't. Even with all of our technological advancements and all the records that we've been keeping, there will be something that we can go and dig up and find, but it's not like we're walking around with it. These guys didn't have what we have today. But 550 years of worship later is still something that they say, that's what we actually want today. And so when we look at Asaph's life, surely today, thousands of years later, we can say, I want to still learn from this man and not just get a crunchy because i got the right name. But I want to say, God, there's something in his life, and that's what I want to expose to us this morning and just talk about what is the standard? What did it look like or what does it look like? And so we're going to look at a few things. So that's where Bible drill. Keep your hands ready. Warm them up and page, and swipe, and whatever else. We're going to look at, first of all, that he had some incredible capacity to, to lead in worship. So the first point we want to look at is the standard of worship is leadership in worship. And so, we're going to ask you to turn with me to 1 Chronicles. 
We don't often preach from 1 Chronicles. It's such a historical book. So many things happen in there, but there's so many good things that we can actually share from there. So 1 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 15 to 17, we actually are introduced to the man for the first time. The context is David has just become king. And David, because he had a heart for worship, he longed for the presence of God. And in those years, the presence of God was, was resembled through the Ark of the Covenant, which is a physical box that they had, and that they believed resembled the presence of God. And so he said, we need to have the Ark back into Jerusalem. And, and as they brought the Ark in, he said, now we've got to reestablish, we've got to actually establish full-on worship. Worship towards God because we're now sensing His presence or we're aware of His presence. And so here we find in 1 Chronicles 15, verse 15 it says, And the Levites, the Levites were the people from a particular tribe they were chosen to work um, and serving God. They were kind of like the ministers of the time that could do the churchy kind of work. And at this time they didn't have a tabern- they didn't have a temple, so they had a tabernacle or a tent. It says in Verse 15, then the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Verse 16, David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who should play loudly on musical instruments. Say with me loudly. We don't do this thing for God softly. We're like, Jesus, I love you with all my heart. Now we go loudly with it. Actually, that's how we encourage people. When you serve God, do it. Do it with a lot of enthusiasm. Not just sing loudly, but act loudly for Him. It says, do it on instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals to raise sounds of joy. And then it says, so the Levites appointed Heman, the son of Joel, and of his brothers Asaph, the son of Berechiah. And it carries on with other names. So here Asaph is appointed by the Levites to make music and song. We read further now in the verses up there, 1 Chronicles 16, and it says in verse 1, And they brought in the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord and distributed to all Israel, both men and women, to each a loaf of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. Then it says in verse 4, Then he appointed some of the Levites as ministers. So if uh, in, in chapter 15 it was said that Asaph came from um, the couple of brothers that said he should also be making music. But now David does something more with him. It says, These guys were, impo- were appointed before the ark of the Lord to invoke, which really is to appeal, to call on people, come on, let's do it, to, to thank um, God and to praise the Lord the God of Israel. And then in verse 5, listen to this. Asaph was the chief. So now he's no longer just one of the singers, but he is made the leader of the group of singers and musos. And he has this incredible responsibility to lead what David wants to have done. And later in, um, in 1 Chronicle 23, we don't have time for that. We actually see what, what the size of this group was. It was 4,000 people that Asaph had the responsibility of leading so that they could lead the nation in worship. Asaph was in charge of all of that. And so he had this incredible, wonderful responsibility. We read also in uh, 1 Chronicles 
um, 16 or it's up there, hey. But just later on in verse 37, well, yeah, it is actually in my Bible. I quickly do turn there. It says in verse 7, it's not on the board, but in, in, in verse 7 of chapter 16, it says, Then on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asa and his brothers. And then you have this beautiful song that David wrote, but he said, Asa, you've got to lead the people in this. So an incredible responsibility to lead in worship. My point I'm trying to make out of this is any call to worship publicly, and in this case for Asa, we had to lead the people publicly, surely is directly dependent upon the private worship of such an individual. If I would appoint a leader of a team of 4,000 to lead the nation of thousands, but I'm not sure that he loves the Lord his God with all his heart, his mind, soul, and his strength. Surely I'll be irresponsible. It doesn't, it doesn't say that clearly in the Bible, but I'm just making this assumption. David would not engage somebody and appoint somebody to lead this beautiful thing called worship that he wanted to be done 24-7 with someone that's not interested in God. He doesn't have a heart for God. And we see that later on, the legacy that he left as a worshiper of God. Public life is directly dependent upon our private prayer and private worship of God. He certainly went public with Asa. Come on, 4,000 people. Nation of Israel. But he must have said, there's something private in this man's life that I like. So much so that Nehemiah talks about it 550 years later, that the worship that David and Asaph had is what we want to have again today. And so I want to say to you, private worship fuels public worship. And I'm not just talking about the four songs that we sang this morning. I'm talking about your public worship, that you go out and you are what you're supposed to be. When you go home now and you spend time with your family and you engage your wife and your children and your husband and you engage the people during this week and you go out and you do what you're supposed to do, that is your worship unto the Lord. However you do it, that is your worship unto the Lord. It's directly dependent upon your private worship. If there's no private worship of God, our public worship is greatly, greatly affected. And so who we are in public is determined by who I am in private. And we often speak about this. But we've got to be together in worship by how we do our private worship. We, are not, we don't spend hours on trying to teach you how to clap how to sing, how to stand, how to raise your hands, which, by the way, are good things to do. Most of our time, if not all, is trying to get us to a place of private worship so that your public worship will be indicative of your heart after God. And we see that in the life of Asa. 1 Corinthians, it's up there. It's Paul. I just want to show this to you. Paul writes this very clearly that he says, when you get together, there's something that you bring and not something that you just come up with and suddenly find. He says in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 14, he says these amazing words. He says, when, what then, brothers? 
and sisters, if I may add, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. And so really what he's saying is, guys, when you come together, come with what you have been stirred with in your private walk with God. So that when you go public, you have something to give. And in this context, it talks about the gathering of God's people, the saints, that you come together to stir one another. And by the way, that's how we ought to actually come together on a Sunday. Ready to give. Not just, oh, oh, can't wait for Sunday because I'm so thirsty. Now you come ready to give because your public or your private moments with God is so incredibly fulfilling and satisfying that when you go public, you have something to give. And not just on a Sunday, but on a Monday and on a Tuesday and on a Wednesday. That you go out into the world and you are a missionary, by the way. And we will talk about together on mission soon too. That means that you and I are missionaries wherever we go. We go worship the Lord at our workplace. Your workstation is your worship station. It's not just Sundays when you gather like this. So the question is, how are we doing with that? How's your public worship? Asa seemed to have had something in his private walk with God that gave him incredible privilege to go public with it. The The second standard that I want to refer to from his life is regular worship. He had regular worship, and we we see this in 1 Chronicles 16 again, where in verse 37, we go back to 1 Chronicles. Remember now, you're going to page around. 1 Chronicles 16, verse 37, it says, So David left Asaph and his brothers there before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister regularly before the Ark as each day required. So this was something that did not just happen every now and again. It was regular, and in this context, it was daily. His worship to the Lord, the standard that seemingly Nehemiah speaks about 550 years later, is that it was regular. And so clearly worship is instituted to be a lifestyle thing. It's not just something that I'll worship you on Tuesday, but today I'm I'm taking time off. It's like my time. So I'll I'll reinstitute it when I feel like it again. I don't really feel like worshiping. I come to a gathering. I don't really feel like worshiping this morning. How dare we decide when we will worship our God or not? How dare we have the audacity to say, I will worship Him when I feel like it? How dare we be so arrogant to say, I don't feel like it? God has done everything that is required for you and I to live and to have life and to have life eternally. And we, we decide when we want to and how we want to do that. And no, that's not really my style. I don't worship that way. I don't give that much to God. I don't really have to surrender myself to that extent. This is something more. David had an expectation that worship needed to be a regular daily affair. And it must have been con- he must have been convinced that Asaph had the capacity to do that. And so he appoints him to do it. I want to ask myself the question, and you. Can I include you in this question? Is that okay? I'm asking myself this question. And as you have given me permission now, I'm including you in it too. How's my regular worship of God? 
is my worship of God regular? And what does it look like? We learn from Asaph. We see there's something that he did that certainly we can learn from. Because our regular worship takes place every single moment of every single day. It doesn't wait for a Sunday. Our worship of God is when we go into the streets, when we drive, when we go, when we go to work, whatever we do, that's where worship takes place. The third thing about this Asaph that seemingly had this incredible effect that 550 years later they talk about him is that he had influential worship. It wasn't just that he led in worship. It wasn't just that he had regular worship, but he had influential worship. So his worship went beyond just his own immediate sphere. It says in 1 Chronicles 25, listen to now how it just goes on. In verse 1 in 1 Chronicles 25, it says, And David and the chiefs of the service also set apart for the service the sons of Asaph. And of Heman, and of Juduthan, who prophesied with lyres, with harps, and with cymbals. Now it goes wider than just a man. It includes his sons. Now it could include his physical sons. It could even include those that he mentored. He had a responsibility over 4,000. Surely there must have been people that really looked and said, Wow, that's what you are. And who you are is somehow so inspiring to me. I want to learn more from you. So his worship was not just a private affair that he kept to himself. It influenced others that, that it included, started including them in the actual worship that was taking place at the tabernacle. So he replicated himself in terms of worship. His worship to God seemingly inspired others. And you'll see later on just how incredibly impactful his inspiration had become. Question again is how, how inspirational is my worship of God to others? Not come and stand so that people can see how you know, in love you are with Jesus by looking at you on a Sunday morning. But your worship to God during the week. Does it inspire others towards something else, towards a similar thing? Where they say to wow, I look at your life and I want to do the same. Yesterday, this hall was packed with 200 plus people. Because one dear lady called Vanya Cooper, who had recently passed away last week, Monday. It's a great blessing to this church, great friend of ours. 200 plus people came because her life affected theirs. And they came to pay respects. I was astounded. About 80% of the people that were here, I didn't know. And most of them were Marungus. I'm like, oh my goodness, I didn't know there were so many white people in this place. Still. I was starting to feel safe. No, no. <laughs> no, it's just it's amazing that, that, that people came that I'd never seen before. Seriously, I'd never seen their faces. And they came because the life of one called Vanya Cooper had been influential. So much so that they wanted to come and say, yes, I want to recognize. And they didn't come and say, we want to serve God with her necessary. They just saw something in her life. And many of them, I think, didn't even know. Don't even know really who God is. The point is this, is that 
our lives, our worship to God. And by the way, none of those had ever come to King City to see her here. They had seen her there. There where the worship really counts, eh? That's why they came. They saw her worship behind the desk when she's doing accounts. They saw her worship at the tennis court where she played often. They saw her worship in social moments. That's where she saw, where they saw her worship to God being real. So I want to ask myself the question again and include you. How's my worship influencing others today? The fourth thing about, about worship from the life of Asaph is that he left this incredible legacy of worship. You can see those verses. And please, you've got to write them down. I'm going to not be able to take you to all of them. But, but 40 years later, after David appointed him, as we saw in, in 1 Chronicles 16, to lead worship, we see him still involved in worship with, with King Solomon. Solomon was the son of David. And, and so Solomon is now the king, and the temple is now being dedicated. The temple is actually being built. It's this wonderful building. And so Asaph is still involved. Forty years after he started, he's still involved. And he's still included in leading people and playing a major role, an influential role in helping others to worship God. Forty years! Come on! We've got to carry on with what we've started. Never, ever stop. But look further. Second Chronicles chapter 20. This is now 100 years after this, after Solomon. Asaph's name is mentioned again. We find King Jehoshaphat. And again, you can go read through the story. The verses are there. He's praying for protection against the invading armies and, and receives a prophetic word that God says, I'll be with you. And you know who the person is that comes and encourages him with a word from God? It's a man called Jehaziel. And the Bible says he's one of the sons of Asaph. <laughs> So Asaph had such an incredible effect and influence through worship that these sons and the sons and the sons, 100 years later, he brought a word of encouragement. It doesn't stop there. 140 years now after this. This is now close to 200 years since Asaph's time. We read after Jehoshaphat, there's another king, Hezekiah. The, the sons of Asaph were among the Levites who cleansed and consecrated the temple so worship to God could be restored. Second Chronicles chapter 29, verse 12 to 15. Then another 80 years later, after the great turning against God and, and the book of the law was found again, King Josiah, he wants to reinstitute, reinstitute worship and celebrate Passover again. And the singers that he appoints in Second Chronicles um, chapter 35 there turns out to be the sons of Asaph. <laughs> in Ezra 2, now the people had returned from exile. They were in, in Babylon and those places. And so worship is reinstituted. And in Ezra and in Nehemiah, we see that the people that were the singers, the sons of Asaph. This is now 400 years, ladies and gentlemen, after the dedication of the temple. 
the people that come and are instituted or appointed rather to lead worship are the sons of our dear friend called Asaph. There's something about Asaph that goes far beyond just what we often just read. The last point I want to give to you is the character of worship that we find in his life. And this is taken from those beautiful psalms that he wrote. I want to just take you to the, the 12 that he wrote. It starts in Psalm 50, I think, and then Psalm 71, all the way to 82, 83, somewhere there. But one of them that he wrote, and um, we'll look at just two quickly. But Psalm 73 is, is just an indication of the kind of character that this guy had. Psalm 73, verses 1, I want to read to you. It says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So his fighting is this inner turmoil in his heart that Asaph is saying, things are not happening the way that they should. And it surely was like, and we don't have time to go into the history of what really took place, but it just was the case of the, the nation was attacked and things weren't great. How does he respond? He writes this. Listen to what verse 16 says. After all of these things, the wickedness and the stuff happening around him, he says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed, it seemed to me a wearisome task. How do, I under, how do I make sense of this? Here I'm sitting, Asaph, in the middle of all this turmoil. How do we make sense of this? Verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. And I knew that God is in control, and the end is not in my hands. It's in God's hands. I can rest in Him. He knows what is best. Listen to what he says in verse 23. It says, Nevertheless, talking to God, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. He says in verse 28, But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So he's saying, I am in deep distress. I don't know what to do. My feet are slipping. But what do I do? I go into the sanctuary of my God. This is the character of worship he had. It's not how he sang. It's how he lived that mattered most. You read in, in Psalm 78, this is the beautiful thing that, that I believe contributed towards the legacy that he had left. Psalm 78, verse 4 to 7, listen to this in closing. We will not hide them. These are the things of God, the teachings of God, he says, verse 4. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. This is what he wrote in Psalm 78. And when we read the legacy of those verses of what happened, 100, 140, 400 years after him, it all came from the desire that this man had to say, I want to teach my children so that they can teach the next and so on. So that worship will remain in my bloodline for as long as possible. So we together 
for that kind of a life, folk. We're not together for an hour and a half on a Sunday to worship God just through song. We're together to change this world through worship. And it starts not through the four songs that we sang this morning or the fire that we will sing next week. It starts when you go home now. And we remain together for worship. And let our heart for worship remain the thing that wakes us in the morning and say, Today, I will worship Him. I will lead myself in worship as I lead others. I will, do, I will be regular in my worship. I will be influential in my worship. I will leave a legacy like Vanya Cooper has. She's left a legacy of worship. And I will have a character of worship through the way I live. I pray God will help us with this. That we will be strong in our worship. Let's pray. Jesus, you said that we need to worship you in spirit and in truth. And not just come and, and do the rituals and, and clap hands and sing songs, but to be genuine in the way that we live for you. Giving of our lives, giving of ourselves, so that you will be honored. And my Father, this is what I pray for us as King City, that we will be genuine in that. And offer the kind of Asaph heart when it comes to worship. And Lord, I pray for people this morning that have never worshipped you. That have never given of themselves or their lives to you and say, I want to worship my God from this moment on. I pray, Lord God, if there are people here this morning that, that, that need to commit themselves to a lifestyle of worship, I pray that you'll stir their hearts right now, that they will say, yes, Jesus, this is what I want to do. You gave your life to me so that I can have eternity. I ask that you'll forgive me for my sins. I ask you to come into my life and save me. And I ask you to help me so that I can worship you from this moment on. I pray for people like that, Lord God, that they will commit themselves to that. And help us all to be known as worshippers of God every day of our lives. We trust you for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.